When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford, and today we have an interview with Warren St. John, author of the new book, Outcast United. Today on the Reading and Writing Podcast, I'm happy to be joined by Warren St. John, a New York Times reporter and the author of Rammer Jammer Yellowhammer, a look at the passionate and fanatical University of Alabama football fans. St. John's newest book, Outcast United, which has just been published by Spiegel and Growl, tells the true story of the Fugees, a youth soccer team in Clarkston, Georgia, made up of refugees from a variety of foreign countries who have been relocated or settled in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Warren, welcome to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Sure, sure. Well, I just described your new book, Outcast United, in a very brief sentence. I wondered if you could take a few minutes and give a little more background and info about the book and the story for someone who may not have heard about it before. Sure. Uh, Outcast United is the story of a refugee soccer team located in Clarkson, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. And it's also the story of this uh, this town that is undergone three social change in a, in a very short span of time, and it's the story of the coach of the team, um, Luma Mufla, uh, who came to the U.S. from Jordan, and um, in some ways, I think one of the, the, the ironies of the, of the story and of the Fugees and of Clarkson is that it takes this woman from Jordan and these kids from over a dozen war-torn countries to remind a community of, uh, of what this country is all about and what our values are. Sure, sure. That that sounds like a, a, a great description. And, and I, you know, definitely recommend the book. If someone's listening to this, I, I've read it. And that's why I was interested in doing this, this interview. Um, in the book, you write about the, the often horrific and brutal backgrounds of many of the refugee kids on the soccer team. And many of them are from African countries. I wondered before you started working on this book, did you know much about Africa and the often violent conflicts going on in the countries that these refugees had to flee? Um, I think I knew about them in the way that, um, you know, a a news-obsessed um, American or European uh, might know about them. Um, and I'd read, um, you know, books about African politics and history, like King Leopold's Ghost, you know, sort of the, I had a lay familiarity um, with them. But um, I took the occasion... Uh, I report to, to read a lot more and try to understand a lot more because, as I say uh, in the introduction of the book, that in some ways soccer provides a, a useful metaphor for understanding um, how this community in, in Georgia came to be. And by that I mean that because soccer is a fluid game, um, if you want to understand how something happened, you have to work back through the action to the first touch. And as as I say in the introduction, if the first if if the if the if a goal is scored by a 
refugee from Burundi off of assist an assist from a refugee from Kosovo um, who got the ball from um, you know off a tackle from a, a refugee from Congo um, on a particular day at a particular time in Georgia, USA, to understand how those particular individuals came together at that very moment. You really have to work back past the first touch of the game to the political realities that caused them to have to flee their homelands in the first place and to the mechanism of refugee resettlement to understand how they all ended up together in this community and ended up on the same team. So I try to, um, I try to offer that in the book because I think it's really important to, um, you know, to, to honor the individual dignity of the, of the kids and the characters in the story. Sure. Sure. Sometimes reporting about refugees can seem very distant and impersonal and, a lot of statistics are used that sort of deprive individual refugees of their, you know, uniqueness. Um, so I wanted to try to work around that problem by making sure that the the kids came across as people and individuals. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, as someone who grew up in middle Georgia, I could certainly recognize the people in Clarkston, Georgia, uh, in the book, as more and more refugees were being relocated to their town. And in the book, you gave several examples of people who basically realized the inevitable and embraced the changing demographics of the, the town. For example, you write about a local grocery store owner who revamped his store to sell ethnic food. And I'm curious if you think that more people in Clarkston and other areas in Georgia that are being impacted by kind of the changing demographics, not only of Atlanta, but, you know, if you look at the demographics of the United States as a whole, if you think that, that more people are embracing the those changing demographics or resisting. Um, well, that's an interesting question. I'm you know, I just think that the the rate of change these days is accelerating so much that um, that I'm not sure people are resisting anymore or embracing anymore. I just think more people are having to deal with, uh, um, with the impact of newcomers from distant cultures than in the past. I think in, in, in the past in our country, a lot of immigration was confined to... Um, you know, larger metropolitan areas, um, particularly near near coasts, um, and uh, and what you're seeing now is um, because of the ease of travel, um, you know, people from all around the world are being sprinkled throughout the United States, and so little communities like Clarkston, Georgia, where nothing ever, no one there ever really encountered. Um, you know, immigrants or refugees in any kind of large numbers for the first 110 years of this town's existence suddenly find themselves playing host to, you know, people from not just one or two foreign countries, but dozens. Um, and and, in that, and Clarkson, of course, is an extreme case, and that's what's so interesting about it, is you, through this extreme case, you, you get to glimpse um, problems and issues that will be happening more pervasively um, over a wider area. And so I think Clarkson is a sort of laboratory for understanding that, that process. And that's what's fascinated me so much as a reporter. Sure. Uh, and I'm just curious, the, the refugee organizations that you mentioned in the book, are they still settling 
refugees in Clarkston at the rate that you talked about in, in the book as of, you know, say today? In fact, I had an um, email exchange with the head of the uh, International Rescue Committee office in Atlanta just last week, and she said that they had never been busier. Um, they're resettling currently refugees from Burma, from uh, Burundi, and from Iraq um, in uh, and around Clarkson. So, um, you know, Clarkson is a, it's really just a little town in one square mile and people in the, in the area refer to Clarkson, refer, refer to the broader areas and neighborhoods around that one square mile as Clarkson as well. So, um, the refugees going into Clarkson proper and going into the greater Clarkson, if I can use that phrase, and then just uh, around DeKalb County and around Atlanta. So, um, it's it's accelerating. Gotcha. I, I wonder, looking ahead, um, say even five, ten, fifteen years, um, at the kids that you wrote about in, in Outcast United, I wonder, do you think that they'll be fully assimilated into American culture? I, I wonder where you think that you know that's headed. Well, it's really tough to say, and I think the book is about kids who are sort of on the cusp of. Um, you know, two very different outcomes potentially. If if they are able to get the education that they need, um, and and some of the some of the kids are able to do that, um, then really they can have incredibly successful lives. And and I talked to and interviewed several or many refugees, in fact, um, who are own businesses or who are doing well in Atlanta. Um, the young woman uh, who suggested to the owner of the grocery store you mentioned earlier. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Um, that he carried Southeast Asian food for her um, for her community, is now a senior VP at a large real estate company in Atlanta. Um, and that's not atypical. But there are also a lot of stories of kids who don't get um, the education that they need, who aren't mm-hmm. able to make up for the lost time um, in, uh, in societies where education systems had broken down or um, who weren't able to overcome the interrupted um, educational um, stints that they received in, in refugee camps. And they can get in a lot of trouble. There are a lot of bad options available to impoverished kids in some of these communities. And refugees are every bit as susceptible, if not more so, because of their vulnerability than um, than other impoverished Americans. So, um, some of the kids don't make it. Some of the kids get in trouble. Some of the kids um, father kids out of wedlock and um, and join gangs and and things things don't turn out well for them. Stay tuned, and we'll have more of our interview right after this.
The Kindle Chronicles is a Friday audio podcast all about the Amazon Kindle e-reader. I'm Len Edgerly, and each week I present Kindle news, tech tips, an interview, a quote, and listener comments. I've been a writer all my life, and I'm doing this podcast because the Kindle has simply renewed my love of reading. I hope you'll stop by for a listen. You can find me at thekindlechronicles.com or by searching for Kindle in the podcast area of the iTunes store. I have a question for you that many sports marketers have pondered um, with suburban soccer leagues becoming more and more prevalent in the U.S. I'm curious if, if you've ever thought about why Major League Soccer in the U.S. has struggled for so long to develop a thriving business and audience. Um, as you mentioned in, in the book, in other countries, soccer is, is the sport. But even with the, the number of sports leagues in the U.S., America still has resisted it as a, as a spectator sport. And I, I wondered if you had ever thought about why that is. Well, I have and I've read there's a, there's a book about it called uh, Soccer and American, Exception, American Exceptionalism, um, which I've, I've read and I've read a lot of theories and I think you know, there are people who have pondered this question and and written about it um, in far greater detail and with far greater zeal and deeper research than than I have. But I think you know one of the one of the major problems is that um, while it's true that a lot of kids in America play soccer, um, there's a drop off point, and kids I think in America tend to play soccer to organize setting right and and if they if they don't have the organized structure of of soccer they tend to stop playing it um and that's not so true of basketball or um you know maybe some other sports that people play um you know if you play hoops you know if you don't if you're not playing on a, an official high school team or something where well, you still might have a you know three times a week game with your buddies, or he might have show up at the pickup game each evening at the local gym or park. And most of, and, and a lot of immigrant communities, in fact, do have soccer leagues for adults or college age students or teens that are, that are much more recreational. They're all about fun. Right. And uh, not that they don't take it, take the game seriously. And they're certainly very competitive games, but, um, Americans don't play it that way. We seem to need the structure of a, of a league and a formal setting. And I think the problem there is the formal setting sort of evaporates after high school age for most kids if you don't play collegiate soccer. Right. So kids sort of move on um, at a pretty young age, you know, 17, 18 years old. And it's another, oh, 10 to 13 or 14 years before they can really become the kind of paying spectator sport customers who can support a soccer league and or a professional sports league. Sure. And that, that interest, they drop off and they lose interest in the sport. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, I think you're probably right about that. Um, I, I was curious after following the, the fanatical University of Alabama football fans for your first book, what was it that appealed to you about Luma Muffla and the coach of the the coach of the Fugees with her own immigrant experience and and what was it about that story that kind of captured your attention? Well, I, I dropped in on a game. I got a, a tip from a reader that this, the team existed, and I went to this game and 
just I wasn't expecting to see much. I thought maybe I could someday get an article out of it. I just wasn't sure. Um, but I saw this very intense, um, intense uh, afternoon unfold in front of me, where um, Luma was a quiet, um, very focused presence, and these kids from over a dozen countries uh, seemed to really respond to her and want to please her and play well for her. And I was intrigued about what what was going on in that transaction. Why did the kids want to please her? Why did they want to play so well? How are they connecting with each other over these cultural barriers and language barriers? And um, and how did it come to be that a woman from Amman, Jordan, of all places, was coaching a refugee soccer team in the D South? These were interesting questions to me. And you know, as a reporter. You're always drawn to um, to points of transition, to, to scenes in society, scenes in culture where um, you know that's where the thing that's where things happen, sort of on the edges. And when you have, it seemed to me, if you had a woman coaching in a mostly in a male league, um, a woman from Jordan in the deep south, um, a soccer team with no advantages at all, playing the best equipped and best funded teams in, in the state, um, that there were a lot of, there were a lot of themes there colliding together. And so I wanted to see what that was like. And, um, and now I wasn't disappointed. I mean, it was very, I, I learned so much from, from my reporting. Great. Great. Have you started thinking about your next book yet? Do you know what you'll be writing? But my next book you said? Yes, yes, your next book. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about it all the time. <laughs> but I haven't started writing. Um, I'm following a, a couple of stories that um, you know, may, may pan out to, um, to support a book. You know, books are complicated. They need, you know, a lot has to be going on. And so um, I've learned to just be a bit patient and um, for committing to make sure that I'm, um, you know, to make sure that the material is right for, for the form. Sure, sure. Um, well, I have a final question. How do you think the Crimson Tide will do in college football this year? You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I'm uh, fairly um, removed from any of the latest college football news. I was planning to re-engage a bit later um, in the summer, closer to fall. So any, any prediction I could possibly make would be um, just a guess, um, and, but as a fan, of course, I'm an eternal optimist. Um, so I would, I expect they'll be, I expect they'll be pretty good. And I'll enter the season with all of the irrational optimism that um, that a fan requires at, at the beginning of a season. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, well, I think that's all I have for now. Thanks again for for doing this interview and. Um, if anyone's listening and, and would like to check out the book, the again, the title of the book is Outcast United, and the author is Warren St. John. Thanks for listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to our feed in iTunes, or you can leave a review of this podcast on iTunes. 
And if you'd like to leave a voicemail, we can include your audio comment in a future episode of the podcast. The voicemail line is 206-888-2731. Again, that's 206-888-2731. Thanks again for listening, and we will be back in two weeks with another interview with a writer that you enjoy reading. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.